view of wealth, the Christian view of resources. We want to become more specific, as, if we can this morning, with, this, with our panel. And, of course, our panel is represented uh, by the members of the business department faculty here at the Master's College. And uh, so there are six of us here. We comprise the business department faculty. Some students think that we're six good reasons why business majors tend to believe in a post-tribulational rapture. After you've had theology class, maybe uh, that will sink in a little bit more. It's been said that the way that we use money shows our true response to God. And as I said on Wednesday, there are three precious resources that we have. Time, energy, and money, or material wealth. And I could hear you tell me what is important in your life, but the fact of the matter is... I would know what's important to you by looking at your day timer and your checkbook, if you have those. Because your day timer will tell me how you spend your time and energy, and your checkbook will tell me how you spend your money, and the rest of it from there on out is just talk, because then we would know what's really going on. Money is amoral, as I said on Wednesday. It's just a tool. It can either be a tool for good or bad. The Bible tells us a lot about money. Over 600 passages in Scripture on the topic of money. The vast majority of the parables in the New Testament use money as either the object of the lesson or the way to teach a deeper lesson. And we want to talk with you a little bit about that this morning as a panel. There are some bad uses for money. There's hoarding. Luke 12 talks about that. James 5 talks about conspicuous consumption. Somebody consuming just for show or to show others that they have wealth. Using money strictly for our own pleasure, according to James 4, can be a problem. The Bible highlights some great ways to use money. Supporting ourselves and our family. Advancing God's kingdom. Supporting the local church. Helping those in need. There are a lot of good ways that this tool can be used. But the way that we decide to use the tool is absolutely critical. And the plan for using the tool is called a budget. When a person sits down, makes out their budget, either consciously or subconsciously, they are essentially planning whether God will be a part of that use or God will not be a part of the use. In other words, if we looked at the budget of an average Christian, would it look different than the budget of someone who does not profess to know the Lord Jesus? And I think there should be a difference. Now take out a pencil and paper. We want to give you something to take with you uh, from chapel. And I want you to write something down. It's very simple. And what you write down will serve as the outline for our panel discussion. Okay, so if the pencils are poised, here's what I want you to write down. Write down I, T, C, 10, 10, 80. I-T-C-10-10-80. 
Okay? Now, underneath that, write this. Income, that's the I, income, and underneath income, write minus taxes, income minus taxes, underneath minus taxes, write minus contributions, So income minus taxes minus contributions equals disposable income. And then that disposable income will be divided in three ways. First of all, 10% underneath this disposable income, 10% long-term savings. 10% long-term savings. Underneath that, write 10% short-term savings. 10% short-term savings. Underneath that, write 80% normal living expenses. 80% normal living expenses. Allow me to introduce our panel to you. It's Dr. Benjamin Powell. Dr. Powell has his bachelor's degree from University of Wyoming, his Master of Business Administration from University of Southern California, and his PhD from New York University. He's married, has four children, is involved in real estate in Los Angeles and in Wyoming, is involved in cattle ranching, owns a motel and a veterinary clinic. Next to him is Benjamin Powell, who, uh, excuse me, Benjamin Brown. We have three Bens on the faculty, and uh, I get them. I won't say anything else. (laughs) Benjamin Brown. And uh, uh, Mr. Brown is a graduate of Los Angeles Baptist College, uh, has a bachelor's degree from LABC, and his MBA uh, from uh, University of California in Davis. Santa Clara University. Santa Clara University. Oh, Santa Clara University. I'm sorry. I have it written down. I better start following my notes. He has a background in engineering and computing and uh, makes a great cup of espresso coffee, if you're ever interested. He coined the business department motto, caffeine, just say yes. <laughs> Mrs. Tara Rankin. is a graduate of Ohio State University and completed the honors track in accounting, is a certified public accountant and worked for Ernst & Winnie before they became Ernst & Young and uh, has an extensive background in accounting, teaches upper division accounting. Mr. Benjamin Law uh, is, a, is a graduate of Lucknow University in India and then has a Master of Arts degree and a Master of Business Administration from Boston University and has been involved in uh, owning and managing restaurants, retail businesses, and is currently involved in real estate. He has two daughters that are medical doctors and a son-in-law that's a medical doctor. If Medicare crashes, he'll be one of the few people that's still okay. (laughs) Mr. Uh, 
Jeff Heller has joined our faculty and has a bachelor's degree from San Diego State University, his MBA from Pepperdine, and his emphasis is in economics. He was the editor of the largest uh, investment newsletter in America, The Prudent Speculator, and his forte is investments. What we're going to do now is move through that budget process that I just gave you and allow each of these uh, faculty members to respond to one particular facet of that process. And uh, we're going to begin with income. Income is the basis for the budget. And Mrs. Rankin, tell us a little bit about income. Okay. We're going to start with income because it's hard to budget your expenditures without it. Um, Webster defines income, I think, eloquently by saying it's that which comes in. But then it, then it goes on to say that income is receipts, which usually is in the form of money, accruing from labor, which would be like your paycheck, or from a business, which would be like a dividend, or from property, which would be rental income. Now, my assumption is that most of you would have a paycheck and your um, income would be accruing from labor. I want to um, give you some principles that I've come up with. There are probably other principles, but these are just four that we've identified. Four principles that we can draw from God's word about earning income. And we can categorize them in this way. The first one, be diligent and don't be lazy. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. It reads... Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from, from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. Now, I'm sure that by this time, most of you have held one job or another in your life, and probably when you started that job, you got to work maybe five or ten minutes early, and you, you know, maybe ate lunch at your desk most of the time, and you probably even stayed five or ten minutes late. And as you settled into your job, maybe you kind of sat back just a little bit and thought, okay, I'm doing a good job. And maybe somewhere down the line, um, maybe you thought, well, gee, I'm having lunch with a friend today. Maybe I could just extend my lunch, maybe just a half hour. And so you do that and nothing really comes of it. And then maybe a month later, uh, you say, well, I'm going to a concert tonight. Maybe I could just slip out of work just, just maybe 10 minutes early. And so you do that. And by and by, it comes to the point where you stay up really late on the phone one night and you wake up the next morning and you say, I really don't want to go to work today, right? And you say, maybe just this once I'll call in sick. And uh, maybe I do even feel kind of sick. And, and maybe I have a headache today. And, and you start to rationalize. This is what I believe this passage is calling um, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. A little folding of the hands to rest. You kind of sit back and you stop doing your best. And what the, what the proverb says happens to people that do that is that their poverty will come in like a vagabond. And you think of that, your poverty will come in like an, like an unwanted bum on your front porch, right, that you really can't get, get rid of. 
and your need will come like an armed man. And I kind of picture that like your need will come with a gun in its hand and kind of poke it in your ribs and make you painfully aware of its existence and will eat up all of your attention. So the first principle about earning income is be diligent and don't be lazy. The second principle that I have is provide for those under your care. Principle number two is provide for those under your care. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The word provide there actually means to think ahead or to see needs in advance. And so as you grow older and as you marry and um, have children of your own, the Lord is asking you to provide for those under your care or to think ahead about the things that they'll need. Um, I, bet, I bet you've probably seen, I know that I have seen families where the father um, has all sorts of adult toys, um, you know, guns and motorbi- or, uh, motorcycles and that kind of thing, and yet maybe his children don't have the dental care, the medical care that they need. The Lord is saying with your income that you need to make enough to provide for those under your care. That's principle number two. Principle number three about earning income, seek neither poverty nor riches. Seek neither poverty nor riches. I don't think we need to talk too long about the first one, about not seeking poverty, because I don't think any of us might struggle with that too much. And in fact, I think Dr. Mackey touched on the verses that address this um, on Wednesday in his chapel. So I'll just, as a way of reminder, say that um, both poverty and riches will tempt you to be consumed with money. Poverty will tempt you to be um, consumed with your next meal and how you're going to provide for your needs. And riches will tempt you to um, move away from God and trust in your money as your security. So that's... Principle number three, seek neither poverty nor riches. And lastly, principle number four is be content. Be content with the income that God has given you. 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 and 8 say, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you think about it, food and covering are real needs, aren't they? Those are basic needs, food and covering. And the word content there actually means having a mind that is at peace. So if we substitute those back into the verse, we have, and if we have our most basic needs met with this, we shall have a mind at peace. And really, if God provides us with those basic needs, that's really more than we deserve, isn't it? So those are the four principles. The first one, be diligent, don't be lazy. The second one, provide for those under your care. The third one, seek neither poverty nor riches. And the fourth, be content. Thanks, Mrs. Rankin. And I'm, I'm convinced that uh, if we follow the biblical teaching on, on garnering income, that barring the fact that God would use lack of income to test us as he did Job, Uh, or some other circumstance in our life that that will produce a a certain amount of wealth in the life of the believer. This kind of biblical worth ethic will result in that type of wealth. Mr. Lull, taxes. 
Excess. We need to pay taxes. Income minus taxes. When you get that check, the taxes have been deducted off of it. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, Dr. Mackey, taxes, taxes, <laughs> and taxes. <laughs> what is there in this life? We know that it is said that uh, there are two things are certain in this life. You know, first is death and the second is taxes. <laughs> and certainly, as far as we see around us in our country, in our lives, we know that at least on the average, average family pays 30% of its gross income in taxes. That's what it is, taxes. Suddenly, uh, we know that as Christians, we are obligated to pay our due share. Well, in uh, Matthew 22nd, chapter 22nd, as you already know, uh, starting from verse 15, when the Pharisees were, or they were planning to trap Jesus Christ, they wanted to find out how he felt about taxes. And they simply said, I'm not going to read the entire verse because of the time constraint. It simply says, tell us, Pharisees are asking Jesus, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And of course, Jesus Christ knew their intention. He knew what they were planning to do to him. And so he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the taxes. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose? portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now you can see very clearly uh, that Christians should have the same point of view, because our Lord Jesus Christ gave us this example to us. And therefore, there should not be any doubt in every, anybody's mind who believes in Jesus Christ that they must pay their due share. After saying this, then suddenly I would like to inform you somewhat. Uh, you already know that our uh, uh, tax system here is progressive system. This simply means more you earn, more you pay. I mean, that is the progressive system. However, as far as the individuals are concerned, they are divided into three different brackets, and they are from uh, 0 to 32,450. The tax rate is 15% if you file jointly. From 32,451 to 78,400, the tax rate is 28%. Then over 78,400, the tax rate is 31%. Now, uh, the types of taxes, as I said in the beginning, taxes, taxes, and taxes. The types of taxes, I'm going to just briefly give you the major taxes that we all pay living in the United States. First of all is the federal income tax. That consists of the 43% of the total revenue 
of the United States government. Then we have the Social Security taxes that consist of 34% of the total income of the federal government. Then the corporation pay only 9% of the taxes. Excise taxes and sales taxes consist of about 3%. The gift, uh, it is said that since the time you are born and the time that you die, you never stop paying taxes. And that is the gift tax, estate tax, about 3%. And then, of course, our government spends more than what takes in. And it borrows about 7% of its total income from the taxpayers. Now, I would have to say that on one side, it is proper for us to pay the taxes. But on the other hand, I want to caution you that do not follow the example of our government. And it is quite obvious that uh, with uh, the more than trillion dollar um, uh, deficit that we have, then as Christians people, we have to keep our budget uh, in control, under control. Then the benefit, naturally, since we pay taxes, we also derive many, many benefits. And again, I'll keep my remarks briefly. And I would say that the direct benefits that everyone in this country der derives from, uh, from the taxes is naturally the highways, education, welfare, social security benefits, and the salaries of the employees of the government, and so on and so forth. And by the way, uh, Judge Thomas is going to receive $145,000 as the starting salary as he starts his job. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, as far as our senators and our uh, uh, other people in the government, they have given themselves the raises of 22000 just recently. Now, uh, it is a good idea for Christians to keep that in mind when the election time comes. <laughs> uh, then, of course, we have the national defense, and we pay about 25% uh, for the, our national defense. Another big expense is, of course, the interest expense that our government incurs on the debt that it accumulates, and it is 14%, 1-4% of the total expenses of our government. Then we have the government grant to the state. Mind you that it is less than what federal government pays to the state and local government. It pays only 12% to the state and local government. On the other hand, the interest is 14%. And then, of course, other expenditures that our government incurs is about 6%. Now, um, we know that there is time for everything, as it says in the, the Proverbs. There is time to sow. There is time to reap. There is time to laugh. There is time to cry. And there is time to earn, and there is time to pay taxes. Uh, and so, uh, as you can see, that uh, uh, as far as our uh, taxes are concerned, that is a part of our uh, budget. So one, now what lesson can we learn from all this? As far as we Christians are concerned, this simply means that we have to provide for taxes 
up to the extent of 30%. As I have mentioned, all the taxes that I just mentioned to you, so we have to set aside, and we, when we are planning our budget, then 30% of our budget should be assigned to uh, the taxes that we have. And um, uh, certainly then we have another uh, biblical example here. Uh, it is right and fair for us to do. And this is Romans 13. I'm sure that most of you know what it says. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Then it also says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. And therefore, it is quite clear there shouldn't be any doubt about it. However, we have to be proved prudent as far as our taxes are concerned. Certainly, uh, there are certain uh, rules and regulations that we have to follow and we have to be honest. However, uh, uh, Proverbs also says, Proverbs 13, 16, that every prudent man acts out of knowledge. And therefore, I think we should be knowledgeable about our taxes. And what does that simply mean is that more you learn about taxes, better off you will be. Now, there are two things I would like to mention in the conclusion. Number one is, as far as the tax evasion is concerned, it is wrong and it is unchristian, it is unbiblical. But as far as the tax avoidance is concerned, certainly, <laughs> as far as tax avoidance is concerned, it is, in my judgment, I cannot prove it from the Bible, but only, as I have said, from the proverb 13:16 says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge. And therefore, if you have a good knowledge of taxation, this means that you will be in a position to save some on your taxes. And therefore, what I'm simply suggesting that as Christians, it is our responsibility, it is our duty to learn more about taxes. And here I would like to say that in our business department, we do have a course uh, <laughs> called the income taxes. And you are most welcome to come and take that tax so that you will become the prudent uh, taxpayers and you will be able to avoid ta taxes. And I will teach you not to evade taxes. Thank you for listening. I wonder who teaches that course. Okay, the government's your silent partner, drawing out of your paycheck every time you get it, regardless. You need to understand your partner. Okay? So income minus taxes minus contributions. The great privilege of giving. Prof, tell us a little bit about what the Bible says. Well, there's so much uh, in the Bible about contributions, it's difficult to condense it. But here's a sample of some of the scriptures. I noticed that in 2 Corinthians 9.13, that contributions glorify and please God, Philippians 4.18. In Leviticus 27.20, contributions are called holy unto the Lord. Contributions in Acts 4, 31 through 32, are the visible result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In the account of Zacchaeus, the uh, tree-climbing midget, you remember that Zacchaeus, remember that Zacchaeus 
first act after he believed was to reach for his checkbook. And Jesus said, notice, this shows salvation has reached to his household today. Contributions in Matthew 6, 19 through 20 indicate that our focus has changed from earthly things into heavenly things, 1 Timothy 6.17. Contributions can be considered investments that reap eternal benefits in Luke 6.16.9 and 1 Timothy 6.18-19. The Bible has so much to say about contributions that they must be important to God. If contributions are important to God, they should be important in our spending plan. So as soon as we receive our paycheck, that's income minus taxes, as soon as we receive our paycheck, we show that we observe God's priorities by immediately skimming off, setting aside our contributions. The sin of neglect, the sin of neglect is shown in Malachi 3, 8 through 9. Cursed Israel, that's his chosen people, his chosen nation. God actually cursed Israel for robbing him of his tithes and offerings. Now, in contrast, Jesus complimented the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees normally were his adversaries. But in one situation, Jesus complimented the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23, when they tithed the very smallest income, mint leaves of all things. The application then is that our incomes may be small, but God expects his tithe and offerings. Another example, this one is the sin of substitution, sin of substitution, Cain and Abel. They both knew what God wanted. Abel gave... Abel gave what God wanted, a blood sacrifice. Cain gave what he had plenty of, vegetables. God accepted Abel's offering, rejected Cain's offering. The result, I understand, is giving something God doesn't want is no substitute for what he does want. Another sin be careful of, the sin of second best. King Solomon, in contrast to King Saul. You remember in 1 Kings 8, 62, King Solomon dedicating the temple by offering, can you believe this, 22,000 cattle? And, if that weren't enough, 120,000 sheep and goats, the best for God's temple. Now, that's in contrast to King Saul, and you know what happened to King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15.3, God told King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, including all of the cattle and all of the sheep. Verse 21, after the battle, the dust has settled. We still hear sheep bleating and Saul says, I gave in to the soldiers who wanted to save out the best. It cost Saul 
his kingdom. In Malachi 1, 6 through 9, God says to his nation Israel, Why are you offering me the crippled and the blind animals? I see that as contempt for me. So the sin of second best is often shown when we give our discards, our spare change, things that we no longer want to use, we give them to God. And finally, the sin of showiness. Jesus confronted that in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, when he condemned the Pharisees for not tithing. They tithed, but the way they did it, they wanted to be seen of men. And you may have uh, seen this when you go up to a stained glass window and underneath is a gold plaque with somebody's name. Open the hymnal and there's the donor's name to be seen of men. Paul gave us some guidelines. 1 Corinthians 16.2 Upon the first day of the week, that means as soon as you receive your paycheck, on the first day of the week, let every one of you, and that means a student who receives an allowance, housewife, as they're spending money, the man who receives a paycheck, let every one of you set aside a sum of money, no substitutes, time isn't a substitute for money, let him set aside a sum of money as God has prospered him, the more you receive, the more is expected from you. Because... In 2 Corinthians 9-7, we're given the why, because God just loves a cheerful giver. Thanks, Prof. Let me encourage you to, uh, in the remainder of our remarks, to remain brief. Mr. Heller, tell us a little bit about saving. There's two kinds of saving, long-term and short-term savings. Saving for retirement, saving for emergency, and debt reduction. I'd like to read again Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Um, so we can learn a lot from the ant in that uh, the ant is always storing up food for the winter when, when the ant needs it. And in the same way, um, uh, we need to, to save money also for um, retirement. For, there's different motives uh, for why we should save long-term. Uh, one, obviously, would be retirement. Uh, the second one, um, uh, once you get married and, and have kids and, um, and, and are working, you need to make provision um, for education. So when your, your uh, daughters and sons grow up, you want to be able to provide for their education. And then second, uh, thirdly, um, when you have big expenses like uh, cars or appliances, you want to <coughs> save in advance so you can buy the cars and appliances without going into, into debt. And so those would be the motives uh, for saving. Um, as far as retirement goes, um, many of us um, fall into the trap that we should rely on Social Security uh, for our retirement. But Social Security was only meant uh, as a supplement. And the other problem with Social Security is that <laughs> when the baby boom generation, which I'm a part of, uh, retires in the year 2020, uh, the Social Security system is, is way underfunded. And 
there's going to be a big debate on what to do about Social Security in the future. Should, should the government cut benefits or should they raise taxes to support the baby boomers? And so we really don't know at this time what the future of Social Security is. So that would be a, um, a strong motive that we really do need to save for retirement because we don't know whether Social Security will be there or not. Um, now, there's different ways that you can save. Um, you know, once you've paid your taxes and once you've given to the Lord, um, before you write the checks for your other expenses, you should write a check to yourself and put that into your into a savings account. And then with, with the money that you accumulate over time, you can put it into what's called an individual retirement account. That's an IRA. And the advantage of an IRA is that the interest that you earn on your money or the capital gains that you make on the money, if it's in an IRA account, you don't have to pay the tax. So that's not tax evasion, that is tax avoidance. Okay, so an IRA is a good savings vehicle. And then the, the second principle on saving for retirement is that you want to diversify. And diversify means that you want to put your money into different asset classes. So you could put some money into stocks or a mutual fund, or you could put some money into, uh, you know, like real estate or bonds. What happens if you only put your money into one particular asset, you can get into a lot of trouble. And there's, there's a couple examples of this. Uh, one would be uh, Donald Trump. You've probably heard of Donald Trump. Um, he's a big real estate investor and also has gambling casinos. But he, he went too far into debt, and then when the prices of real estate have fallen and his gambling casinos haven't done well, um, he's had to relinquish some of that control to the banks and other investors. So if you only put all your money into one asset, you can get into trouble. Uh, another example would be the Hunt brothers. Back in 79, they put all their money into silver, especially silver futures, and then silver went bust, and they're in bankruptcy. And then um, the Reichman brothers, they're big real estate investors in, in Canada, and, and it was actually on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They're in serious trouble now because they put all of their money into real estate, and then the prices of real estate are coming down. And then, of course, it can happen with stocks, too. I worked at the Prudent Speculator um, with Al Frank, and we had all our money into stock, and we had it margined. And then the stock market on October 1987, uh, it collapsed, and we collapsed with it. So you, it's good to diversify your, your holdings. Okay, then as far as short-term savings go, um, you need short-term savings for, for certain emergencies. So if your car breaks down, um, you've got some savings that you can, you can fix the car. If you accidentally crash your car and you have to buy a new car, um, I was in a car accident just a little while ago and crashed it. Um, if, you, if you have short-term savings, then you can go out and, and hopefully get another car. Okay, so there's all kinds of emergencies that always arise. And then on the, on the issue of debt, um, you want to try to, to minimize how much debt you take on. So in Proverbs 22.7, it says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So what we need to do here on the, on the issue of debt is that you need to consider what types of things you should go into debt for and what types of things you shouldn't go into debt for. So, for instance, um, you know, if you're buying a car, you should try to do it with cash rather than 
debt, or if you're trying to buy a house, you can, you know, you, you have to uh, use debt to buy a house. But then everyday, like living expenses, you should try, you know, not to use debt. So you want to um, try to determine when to use debt and when not to use debt. And the problem of the borrower becomes becoming the lender's slave if you take on too much debt and then you can't pay it back. Okay, in Roman times, the lender had the right to, to uh, sell you into slavery, so you become the lender's slave. Um, in today's world, if, if you take on too much debt and can't pay it back, then the lender can foreclose on your house or he can foreclose on whatever asset that he, he loaned you, that you, you bought. So you want to you be aware of that and try not to go too deeply into debt, or you might wind up, you know, you don't know what the future holds, and you might wind up, uh, the lender might own you or own the asset that you bought with the debt. Mm-hmm. And that's all I've got. Thanks, Professor Heller. The last item on there is normal living expense. You can see that we're just skipping from the tip of one iceberg to another in terms of the massive amount of resource that could be available to you to plan these particular areas. But uh, Mr. Brown is going to wrap up our discussion with... Uh, talking about normal living expense. Living expenses are day-to-day purchases such as housing, clothing, transportation, and household items. We can make these purchases without giving much thought about how they fit into a biblical pattern of life. But if we do think about living expenses, we can easily fall into two errors. First, we may mistakenly believe that since God cursed the earth, then all material goods must be evil. This view has led uh, many in the past to lead a rather monkish life. (laughs) The uh, second erroneous view is that all of our purchases are relative, and therefore if you think you need a particular good, then it must be okay to buy it under any circumstances. Producers of goods often use this argument when they claim that they're only giving the people what they want. Both of these two views are errors in the extreme. For a correct view, we may turn to St. Paul, uh, who writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 20, says that all things are pure. In the context of the scripture passage, he's speaking about meat offered to idols, which some Christians bought and ate, while other Christians condemned the practice as idolatry. When Paul says that all things are pure, first he applies this idea to the the meat under question. But then he expands this uh, uh, application to everything physical that God has created. All things are pure. Paul does not say that all things are amoral. He attributes more than just neutrality to physical objects. He says they are pure. This means more than amoral, more than neutral in and of themselves, a phrase which, by the way, does not appear in the Bible. Uh, And these material objects reflect aspects of God. So we can conclude that no products themselves are sinful. In fact, we can conclude that products by their very nature exert a positive influence on the world. Now, having said this, that all things are pure and that uh, the material of the world exerts a positive influence, we come to a very humbling part. Sometimes 
we do bad things with the material that God has placed on the earth. However, the badness, the sin, is not inside the material, but it is inside the person. It is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out, because what comes out is a reflection of the sinful nature inside. We must always be conscious that substances can be abused. Paul says in another passage somewhere else that all things are lawful, but that he will not be brought under the power of any. This is a principle that we should all remember, that material can exert a power over us if we are not careful. This power is only a consequence of our sinful nature, not the material itself. How else could God claim through Paul that all things are pure, all things are lawful? Perhaps more important to understand is that the sin that we commit using these material objects varies with the material being used. Paul doesn't say it, but from our experience, we know that it's true that some material goods are more prone to abuse than others. For example, it is easier to abuse alcohol than mashed potatoes. It is easier to abuse a Danielle Steele novel than the Bible. And conversely, it is harder to abuse hot dogs than Twinkies. It is harder to abuse coffee than cocaine. So where do our responsibilities lie? We as buyers are primarily responsible for our motives when we purchase products. And we are responsible for the use or abuse of those products. Judging our own motives is our foremost priority as buyers. We are not usually responsible for the motives of the seller, however. Usually a manufacturer does not link uh, their underlying motives with the sale of the product. And under these normal circumstances, you are not asked to evaluate your purchase beyond that of looking inside yourself to see if your motives are correct. In some cases, though, uh, the seller may link their motives for selling a product to the product being sold and furthermore claim that you should buy the product because of that reason. For instance, the book Dianetics is sold with the motive of spreading a false religion. The books that are sold by the cult will fund the spread of that, of that uh, cult. So buyers of the book are at fault for a purchase like this. Most products, though, do not have such an overt connection with the seller's motives. So normally, the buyer cannot be held accountable for the seller's motives. Remember, you are, you are normally only concerned with the purchase of a physical product, and it is not the physical product that is at fault. In the case of the book Dianetics, the product is paper and ink and glue. But it is the sellers themselves who make you aware of their reasons for selling the product, thereby forcing you to make that part of your decision of whether to purchase the product or not. In summary, we must, as Christians, appreciate the everyday goods that we buy, not only because they are God's way of meeting our needs, but also because they are pure, because they reflect something of God's nature. We must also be aware uh, that the sinful nature inside of us can enslave us to physical objects, a sinful nature that we will gladly leave behind when our Lord returns for us. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. We've given you a brief outline of budgeting in terms of 
what goes into each particular category of budget. All this is subject for, uh, we don't find that outline in Scripture anywhere. It's just simply a way of doing something. But the principles that underlie each component are from the pages of Scripture. Let me encourage you to begin to think about these various areas. First of all, the area of income. How do you garner wealth? Taxes. What's your responsibility in relationship to taxes? Think about uh, contributions, what God would have you to do and the biblical guidelines for that. Think as well about uh, uh, saving. It's often been said that there's no convenient time to begin saving. And normal living expenses and your attitude toward what it is that God would have you to purchase and why you would do that. I'd like to thank the panel for spending time with us this morning. Big. And maybe in the days ahead, we'll see you come in and ask us some specific questions in the business department. Thank you.